Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. Spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul Channel. And it is 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, November 15, 2016. Well, today's title is, What Would a Caring Mother Do? Could prenatal care be the biggest threat to your unborn baby and you? Tonight, I'm going to examine the latest information from the medical industrial complex itself. Yes, not my research theirs. I don't make accusations. I just take confessions. So this is is really shocking. And I I wouldn't have done a show except it's just one article after another. Boom, 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 boom. Each one talking about um, basically uh, the risk of mothers dying at the hands of medical intervention and get this justifying it like whoa what's up with that so tonight i'm going to share the uh, information from the medical industrial complex itself uh translate it to english of course for you and give you some examples from my own personal experience as well as my personal medical practice to kind of make things a little more uh vivid so here we go. We're going to start with this one. And this came out in November 7th, 2016. So hot off the press, I mean, by golly, last week. It says, early planned birth tied to greater risk of poor development. Poor development? You mean a mentally retarded kid? <laughs> poor development? <sighs> That's not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. And so, what is the early planned birth? Well, early means before the lady would ordinarily have gone to labor to have the baby herself. And so, how do you get a baby out of a lady before she has uh, labor? Well, answer, of course, is a cesarean section. And so, when ladies are so proud, like, wow, you know, um, my baby's going to be born on this date, at this time, I have my appointment for my C-section. Well, 
that is not a good thing. That means her baby has an appointment with an increased risk for poor development. And of course, she has an increased risk of death. We'll get to that part soon. <clears throat> so, planned birth before 39 weeks gestation increases risk for poor child development at school age, according to a population-based study. And this is in a December issue of Pediatrics. And so it's, it's going to be published in December 16, issue of Pediatrics that's released in November. All right. So we found not only that the risk of poor development increased for early additional week, for every additional week a child is born before 39 weeks, but that it increased more for modes of birth other than vaginal birth after spontaneous labor, even among women whose pregnancies were able to identify as being low risk. They suggest that delaying birth for even a week can have significant long-term benefits. Now, also, there's another implication here. What they're saying is if a person, if a baby is born before 39 weeks by vaginal birth, there's a certain risk. But if the baby is born before 39 weeks by methods other than vaginal birth, well, what else is there? C-section. Come on, say it then the babies have a greater risk, even greater risk, of poor development, delayed development, even though it was a low-risk, healthy pregnancy. And so just having this C-section, a planned C-section, puts a baby in a higher-risk category and creates more damage and compromise to the fetus. And a lot of people say, well... I want the best possible baby. I don't want my baby to be average. I want to have a genius. Well, the easiest way to have a genius, of course, is to have a vaginal birth and have the pregnancy last as close to 40 weeks as possible. Okay, so labor, uh, labor induction, that means giving the lady chemicals to get her to have the baby, and pre-labor cesarean section have been done for non-medical reasons, including convenience, of the uh, mother or the physician. And several studies indicate a steady increase in planned births and a decrease in overall gestational age from 40 to 39 weeks internationally. Now, again, this may not seem like much, just one week, but this is an average. So it's an average of 39 weeks. And some of these scheduled C-sections are scheduled for 37 weeks or 36 weeks. And so now this is, you know, so this, this, is, this actually is, is a serious problem that's devastating for these babies. And so one category is VBACs. So uh, ladies who had a cesarean section, when they're having another baby, they get a planned scheduled cesarean section. And this is, of course, uh, bad news for the baby's development. Because development of the fetal brain, again, see, this is the brain, we're talking about the brain, poor development of the brain, you know, let's not mince words here. We're talking about giving birth to a mentally retarded kid or a kid who's a lot stupider than he otherwise would be. And a lot of ladies, and I've talked to the mothers, and they tell me, you know, these kids just aren't that bright. I remember when we were kids, we were just a lot brighter than they were. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's your prenatal care. So let's see what they say here. So they're talking about the baby's uh, brain. So fetal brain accelerates and development as 
after the 32nd week until full term. And delivery before 39 weeks could prevent a child from attaining neurodevelopmental potential. Again, the English translation, it could make the baby stupid. S-T-U-P-I-D, stupid. Now, if you don't like the word stupid, we can call it mentally retarded. And if you don't like the word mentally retarded, we can say neurodevelopmental potential not being optimized. Again, they, they, they couch it in these words. And so doctors reading this are not confronted with the true horror of what they're doing. You know, you are giving this lady an impaired slash stupid kid that's not going to grow up to be able to take care of her in her old age or even better yet, even take care of himself in his middle age. And so uh, giving birth to a child that will never leave home is uh, every person. It's just, it's every mother's nightmare. So Jason P. Bentley from the University of Sydney, Australia, and colleagues probed the association between early child development and gestational age of birth, as well as the mode of birth. They considered 153,730 children born in New South Wales between 2002 and 2007 who had undergone school age assessment using the Australian Early Development Census. Now you could say they may have given a difficult test, but whatever. The authors used birth records to determine gestational age at birth and mode of birth. The average age at assessment was 5.5 years. They examined five domains of development, physical health, well-being, language, cognition, social competence, and emotional maturity, and general knowledge and communication. So children scoring in the lowest 10% were classified as developmentally vulnerable for that domain. Now, if you're in the lower 10% of language and cognition, that makes you mentally retarded, just, just saying. That's the way it's, it's uh, you know, fixed out. So the bottom 17% of intelligence is considered certifiably mentally retarded. All right, just just so you know what we're talking about here. So planned births accounted for 41% of the total. That's outrageous. The percentage rose to 48% of births at 37 weeks and 55% at 38 weeks. Planned births. So the researchers found that 9.6% of the children were um, developmentally uh, delayed. These children were more likely to be boys or small for gestational age or had mothers who were younger were poor or smoked during pregnancy. The risk for developmental delay decreased with increasing gestational age of delivery. And after adjusting for maternal socioeconomic factors, it means how rich the mother was, um, small for gestational age, age at assessment, and sex. So in other words, the strongest factor was gestational age at delivery in terms of getting an intelligent child. So uh, specifically, compared with delivery at 40 weeks, the adjusted relative risk for stupidity was a 25% increase risk from 32 to 33 weeks, uh, 26% increase risk from 34 to 36 weeks, and where does this get to be uh, annoying? Okay, so the biggest risk is a 25% increase in um, idiocy from 34 to 36 weeks. This is shocking because kids 34 to 36 weeks have an excellent chance of survival. <clears throat> and many doctors have no problem scheduling C-sections 
in this uh, age group. None, whatever. They just, they just, oh, of course, no problem. Um, for just the amazing, I think, trivial reasons. Moreover, when the investigators stratified according to mode of birth, they found that the risk of developmental delay was elevated after labor induction or cesarean delivery without labor. And so if a lady has a, cesarean de- a scheduled cesarean delivery, does not go into labor, she increases her child's chance of being an idiot by about as much as 12% compared with a vaginal birth after spontaneous labor. Now, many ladies, if they knew that, that <laughs> their kid their kid's IQ was going to be depressed by a cesarean section, they'd say, well, I will endure the pain of labor. No, ladies, you know, they've not told this stuff. Further, the team found that the risk associated with planned delivery and early birth were additive, such that a planned birth at 37 weeks was associated with 26% greater risk for stupidity compared with spontaneous labor and vaginal delivery at 40 weeks. However, planned delivery at 38 weeks was associated with 13% increase in relative risk of stupidity. So the case for avoiding elective or planned delivery, the same, elective delivery is planned delivery of the same things. Before 39 weeks is strong and getting stronger with data, such as that presented um, by doctors thus and so, at the Department of OBGYN at Women's Health at Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore Medical Center, Bronx, New York, and an accompanying editorial. So, in other words, a teaching hospital in uh, the United States, New York City specifically, found similar findings. Eliminating the practice of planned deliveries will require efforts on multiple fronts, including quality improvement efforts, public education campaigns, and relabeling 37 to 38 weeks as early term versus 39 to 40 weeks as full term. Now, I will tell you, when I was in medical school, if that kid was 36 weeks in one day, boom, he was term. So they totally changed the definition of term, and now it's getting longer and longer. Equally important is that obstetricians and pediatricians provide a unified message to women and families that the optimal timing of planned delivery is at least 39 weeks, they conclude. Limitations of the study include reliance on medical records and the inability to account for all potential confounding factors. But this is absolutely shocking. So early planned birth. So how do you get an early planned birth? Only one way. Submit to prenatal care. So now we can see that a C-section, a scheduled C-section, makes the kid more stupid. Now, you may not want a genius, but who wants to give birth to an idiot? Who wants to give birth to a child that will never be able to grow up and handle his own affairs? All right. So here is another uh, thing that happens only with prenatal care. So you're pregnant, your membranes rupture, you're a very capable doctor diagnoses this, diagnoses it and says, ah, you have pre-labor ruptured membranes. And so it says pre-labor, that means without contractions, ruptured membranes, that means the water sac is broken, is best managed expectantly, that means by doing nothing, by waiting. In other words, they're finding that medical intervention for this situation produces bad outcomes. And so they're saying to doctors, uh, this is the time to do nothing. You can get paid 
but don't do anything. This is a do nothing, a do nothing diagnosis. Okay. In pregnant women who present with pre-labor ruptured membranes, close to term, expectant management with surveillance of maternal and fetal well-being should be preferred over immediate delivery, according to this uh, study. It's been widely assumed that prolonging pregnancy in women with late-term rupture of membranes is associated with a significant risk of neonatal infection, that means baby infection. However, the results of this trial showed that the absolute risk of neonatal infection was low, and this risk was not different in the infants of women who were randomized to do-nothing management or usual medical intervention. More surprisingly, the infants of the mothers who were randomized to immediate delivery were more likely to have a range of complications, including respiratory distress and the need for artificial ventilation, she told Reuters Health by, by Mail. Okay, so why is this? First of all, when the baby is inside the mother, the lungs are filled with water. These are filled with water, sack of water. When the baby passes through the birth canal, the chest is compressed. All this water is squeezed out. It pumps pouring out of the baby's nose and even his mouth. And then when the baby is fully out of the mother, the lungs re-expand, sucking in air. Now you have a baby with air-filled lungs who is breathing and getting oxygen. Okay. Same baby, same start, lungs full of water. You cut them open, grab them out of mom. What's he got? <coughs> he's got a lung full of lungs full of water. How's he going to breathe? Answer: Not very well. Not very well. So I had an unnecessary C-section, and my baby was nine pounds eight ounces, big baby, and he was born with a lung lungs full of water. And of course, he had TTN, the transient tachypnea of the newborn. I mean, for a while there, he had to breathe really fast to try and keep up. And that's because um, he had to um, expand and contract his lungs trying to get rid of that fluid to get that fluid reabsorbed so he could breathe. So he went to the uh, neonatal intensive care unit for like one or two days. And so all babies born by C-section have respiratory difficulties because they are born with a lung full of water. And some babies, depending on how early they're born, now this lung full of water is something they really can't cope with, and they end up needing to be on a ventilator for a while. Okay, so premature rupture of membranes occurs in 20% of all births and 40% of all preterm births. So immediate delivery for premature rupture of membranes at term is associated with better outcomes, of course, whereas the optimal management of women with preterm rupture of membranes before 37 weeks is not clear. The question is, if... The membranes rupture, and the baby is less than 37 weeks old. What do you do? So they did this trial, and what they found is even at 20, at 37 weeks or earlier, the thing to do is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. So less than until the mother gets a fever or there's some other clear sign that there's uh, some distress here, the answer is to do nothing. So the findings of this, trial, of this trial show that for women with ruptured membranes between 34 and 36 weeks, 36 weeks and 6 days, which means almost 37 weeks, a gestation who are carrying a single fetus and who had no reason 
not to, uh, you know, no other reason not to wait, immediate delivery increased the baby's complications with no clinically important decrease in neonatal infection. So in other words, the baby had a lot of problems created by this delivery with no benefit. Therefore, in contrast to recent guidelines recommendations, in other words, in contrast to the standard of care, we advocate that expectant management, do-nothing management, do not do C-section management, is preferred to immediate delivery, that means C-section, in women with ruptured membranes close to term. Women need to be monitored because of the increased risk of hemorrhage and a greater likelihood of developing a fever. So, of course, you can monitor this lady, but no intervention. Leave her alone. So the evidence would suggest that in the absence of any evidence of fetal or neonatal compromise, policy of doing nothing when women have ruptured membranes would be associated with fewer infant complications. However, the women who were managed expectantly had a longer hospital stay than those who were delivered immediately, and an economic evaluation of the study needs to be undertaken to determine whether the policy of expected management is more cost-effective than immediate delivery, taking into account the difference in outcome for both mother and baby. So all women with mushroom membranes in late preterm period should have an individualized assessment concerning their planned delivery. If all monitoring is reassuring, expectant management may be the most appropriate option. And he said even prolonging pregnancy for a few days would be beneficial in infants for infants. However, the infants from this trial should be followed up formally to evaluate whether their neurodevelopment is different in the long term compared with infants delivered immediately. And so we know then here's another reason for C-section, which is premature rupture of membranes. So now they're saying, wait, 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 uh, we're sorry, this, this might not be uh, a good idea. And of course, it gets better. Here's the CDC. That would be the Center for Disease Control. So CDC reports vaginal births are safer than cesarean. And this is uh, this is something that women are not are not told. Um, it's a huge huge difference. So cesarean delivery carries higher risk for women than vaginal birth, according to new data from the CDC. By the way, this was always known uh, by doctors. We're taught in medical school that a cesarean section increases the mother's risk of death, but, of course, it's worth it. Okay. Blood transfusions and admissions to the intensive care unit are more common after first-time C-section deliveries than after vaginal deliveries or repeat C-section deliveries. The report also shows that after a first cesarean delivery, about 90% of women have a second cesarean delivery. Again, that's why, because women are told, oh, you can't have a vaginal delivery after a cesarean. Oh, it's so dangerous. Okay. So they reviewed the data on maternal morbidity, that means harm, serious harm, noted on birth certificates for births that occurred in 2013 in 41 states and Washington, D.C. The data represent 90% of all births in the United States that year. And the authors focus on four maternal morbidities associated with labor and delivery, maternal transfusion, maternal ruptured uterus, unplanned hysterectomy, and ICU admission. 
it would be nice if they mentioned actual maternal death. But so maternal transfusion was the most common of the four at a rate of 280 per 100,000, followed by intensive care admission 154 per 100,000, an unplanned hysterectomy, oh my God, 40 per 100,000, and ruptured uterus 26 per 100,000. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of damage. Now, when I had my um, first cesarean section, I did not have a second one. I had the first one. Um, they offered me a transfusion because I had lost so much blood, so I refused the transfusion. Um, I became so ill that I actually would have qualified by any medical criteria for the ICU for admission, but uh, I refused that as well, and I did not. Uh, I was fortunate not to have a hysterectomy. So women have, having vaginal deliveries with no prior C-section delivery had the lowest rates for all four maternal morbidities. Women with first cesarean delivery had the highest rates of transfusions, intensive period admissions, whereas women with repeat cesarean delivery had the highest rates of ruptured uterus, 88 per 100,000, and unplanned hysterectomy, 143. And for the first time, cesareans had the highest rate of transfusion, 525 per 100,000. That's a lot. So higher rates of maternal morbidity for cesarean compared with vaginal delivery were found for nearly all maternal age groups and for women of all race or ethnicities. So in other words, it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't even matter your income. Um, you're going to get substantial risk of harm from a C-section compared with vaginal delivery. The women with prior cesarean delivery who labored and had vaginal birth generally had lower rates for most of the morbidities, but failed trials of labor were generally associated with higher morbidity than scheduled repeat C-section deliveries, especially for ruptured uterus, which was seven times higher compared with uh, the average. They also noted that their findings on intensive care unit admissions are new, with no other large U.S. studies available that examine this specifically by method of delivery in previous cesarean history. And I have to tell you that, uh, you know, in my years of practicing medicine, a pregnant lady ending up the intensive care unit was a very, very bad thing. Uh, in other words, those ladies did not do well. And it was generally after a cesarean section, and the usual complication was hemorrhage or uh, infection. So maternal morbidities are rare but important issues, and they are difficult to examine with most sample surveys, the authors conclude. Now, the deal here, then, is vaginal births, though, are safer than cesarean, especially for the mother. And this is, uh, this is very, very uh, important. Okay, so now we know that scheduled delivery makes, gives you a stupid baby, we know that cesareans, that vaginal deliveries are definitely safer. And what else? Early term births are linked to future early term, early and preterm births. And so the problem here is having early term births. And the question is, what is the cause of early birth? A huge cause of early birth is scheduled C-sections. Right. 
scheduled C-sections. Now, this is a real problem then. So if, if we're talking about scheduled C-sections um, as a major cause for infant problems and maternal problems, then this is iatrogenic, doctor caused. So let's see if we can sort out what, uh, you know, why are there all these uh, problems with scheduled, uh, scheduled birth? Now, one reason to um, schedule a birth is to prevent stillbirth. And this is huge. So stillbirth rates rise at the 39-week rule. So this is in Atlanta. And Atlanta said, well, implementation of the 39-week rule, which mandates that the elective delivery of babies not occur before gestational age of 39 weeks, unless there's a, a darn good reason, could be increasing the number of term stillbirths, new research shows. So in other words, so taking into account all the damage done by these planned cesareans, the American um, College of, of Obstetrics and Gynecology says, wait, 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 wait. Let's have a rule that if the lady's 39 weeks into her pregnancy or less, then no planned, uh, no planned C-section. It's not a thing. Wait, 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 wait. Now that we've got this rule, we follow this rule, then we're getting an uh, increase in stillbirth. So investigators found the proportion of term stillbirths rose from one. 0.103 per 100 deliveries before the rule was adopted to 1.177 per 1,000 after. So I took delivery of doing a little math. So if we um, take 1.103, subtract from 1.177, we get 0.074. If we divide that, Um, by 1.177, then it tells us that there's 7% increase in stillbirth. Okay, got it. This is per thousand. So basically, it turns out to 6.1 per thousand. In other words, to save one life per 883,000 live births is what we're talking about. So by doing C-sections, we're going to save one life for every 83,333 C-sections that are done. So if one life was saved by a planned C-section, that means that there had to be 83,333 additional C-sections done. But wait. There's another statistic you need to know. For every 100,000 C-sections, 13 mothers die. Yes, 13 mothers die for every 100,000 C-sections. So what we're saying then is we're going to have an increase of 11 dead pregnant ladies for every one stillbirth that is prevented. This is interesting. Yeah. So there are four deaths, by the way, four deaths for every 100,000 women after vaginal deliveries. 
and 13 deaths for every 100,000 women after cesareans. So even if we want to put a good face on this, we'd have to say that uh, there's nine deaths for every 100,000 women after cesareans, nine incremental or additional deaths. And so we're still talking about um, killing a good eight women to save one life just by increasing the number of cesarean sections needed to prevent one stillbirth. Now, this is often what is done in medicine, is doctors perceive that they have to pick the lesser of two evils. So obviously, killing 11 or or, uh, 8 pregnant women is pretty evil. Healthy women, by the way. And allowing one baby to die in a stillbirth that you could have prevented is, of course, evil. So we're, we're left to believe that we have to choose between the lives of these pregnant ladies, call them mothers or would-be mothers, and these babies. Now, here's another thing that you need to know. If a woman dies in childbirth or during her, any point during her pregnancy, and she dies and there is no live birth, then she's not a mother. And that is not considered maternal mortality. Yep. Yep. So the measurement of maternal mortality then is artificially depressed because when the mother dies and the baby dies, she has not become a mother. So we can't, they don't call it maternal mortality, so her death is not counted. And so um, the World Health Organization estimates that in the United States, the number of women dying has increased sixfold in the past 30 years in the United States, women dying in childbirth. This is shocking because this correlates with the time period where prenatal care became accepted and more and more women submitted themselves to prenatal care. Now, Let's see what they're, what they're saying. The 39-week rule may be causing serious unintended harm. They're talking about this one baby in 83,000. That's uh, the stillbirth, one baby in 83,000. No place in this article do they mention the maternal implications of doing these 83,000 C-sections or that 83,000 C-sections would be needed to prevent this one stillbirth. Okay, so let's see what they say. The stern stillbirth is clearly one of the worst obstetrical outcomes, and it occurs with relatively high frequency one per thousand, in one per thousand deliveries that reach 37 weeks, he explained. We should place a high priority on determining the cause, developing preventative interventions, and studying factors suspected of producing this truly horrible outcome. Now, he says one per thousand, but the increase is not one per thousand. The increase is... per thousand. So this is this is an important thing to understand. So the increase is 0.07 per thousand, which turns out to be seven per hundred thousand at most. Now, this is an area you know where they're basically um, confusing their statistics. 
And so if they did all these 83,000 C-sections, it would not make a substantial dent in these stillbirths. So term stillbirths would still be um, 1.1 per thousand, even if you did C-sections on these 83,000 women. You're only saving the 0.07 per thousand. Okay. And so unless or until high-quality research is published that proves the 39-week rule does not increase term stillbirth rates. The forced imposition of the 39-week rule should be immediately rescinded, he said, here at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine in 2016. Now, if you look at $10,000 revenues per C-section, you can pretty quickly see this adds up to a substantial dent in the revenue for OBGYNs just because they're being forced to forego 83000 Basically, 83,000 C-sections here. So the study failed to consider ecological fallacy, which is that we should not determine the treatment of an individual patient based on studies that examine population-based data, he said. Ecological cohort studies should rarely be used to generate policy, yet that's what I think we did. Even at the rule's inception, there were concerns largely based on the known association between increasing gestational age and the increased risk of term stillbirth, which was shown in a number of studies he reported. Although anecdotal reports of increased rates of term stillbirth and concerns from patient advocacy groups boosted apprehension about the rule, other studies failed to find an association between gestational age and stillbirth, he acknowledged. So Dr. Nicholson and his colleagues asked the state health departments to provide data on term birth to say, okay, fine, we're going to ask for more information, but we're still upset about this. Now, let me tell you how we handle this in my practice. So, thank goodness, I practice medicine so I can add a little information here, a little insight. So, I was a family practice doctor, and I had patients who would get pregnant, and I would send them off to the OBGYN. Oh, go to the OBGYN and manage your pregnancy. Yep, they're, they're experts. They can handle it. And ladies would come back to me in tears, absolutely in tears, and they would say, Dr. Daniels, my doctor has me scheduled for a cesarean section at a certain time, and I don't want to have a C-section, and what am I going to do? And, oh, woe is me. I said, oh, when's your C-section schedule? And they would tell me. And I said, well, look, why don't we just, uh, you know, have this baby like maybe 24 hours before? Okay, okay, okay. And then we'd check her date so I'd make sure that this baby really is term. And back then, term was 38 weeks or more. So... I would do the calculation, figure that out. I said, okay, here, here's what you do. Take a teaspoon of cayenne pepper, a cup of water, shake it up, and drink it. And then, uh, you know, have a, have a big meal and go to bed. And without fail, these ladies would have that baby within 24 hours. Right. So this lady doesn't have to risk the increased death associated with the C-section. And her baby doesn't have to risk the increased respiratory distress, and other problems associated with the C-section. They can live happily ever after. And so in these, um, I call them specious, specious discussions of uh, trade-offs, okay, we're going to kill mothers or kill babies, kill mothers or kill babies. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Possibly, is there a, a way we could not kill anybody? But in medicine, it's always presented to us, doctors, as a choice of killing more people or killing fewer people. And they even have a book for doctors 
is, title is, kill as few patients as possible. And so doctors are actually inculcated that you're going to kill people, and that's okay. That's okay. People will die. We just want to kill as few people as possible. And so you have to scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute. Got to be some way for to do good. Can't we do good? Why do we have to always do evil? Why do we always got to pick between the best of two evils? And so, of course, when I would ask these questions in medical school, I was, I was told, Dr. Daniels, one day you're going to understand. So here I am still asking the same question. Why? Why do evil? And so here they say, uh, granted, the relative risk of 1.07 is low. So they, they got the same numbers I did. They did the same math, 0.07. But the confidence interval is, is, uh, is great. In other words, yes, the risk is low. Yes, the risk is not clinically important. They're even going that far. But the numbers say the risk is really is there. It's real. And um, changes are more common in the larger states. In Ohio, for example, significant and clinically important increase was observed from 1.04 per 1,000 deliveries before the rule was adopted to 1.26 per 1,000 deliveries after the rule. And continuous distribution is, is seen across time with a regression line that has a p-value of 0.035. The slope of the change is an increase of 0.01 per 1,000 deliveries per year. And so what they're saying is this does seem to be a correlation. It varies from state to state, which suggests that it varies with um, doctors' uh, practice and the standard of care. These are not statistics, he explained. They are real situations. As I said, this is real. You got one dead baby, or to to save this baby, prevent this death from this baby, we're going to create seven or eight dead mothers. And that is not an acceptable choice. You know, if you've got a medical intervention or method that's going to kill, and the question is, who's it going to kill? It seems to me that's really an unacceptable mode of medical intervention. We would call that barbaric. Okay. There's cause for concern, he concluded, hotly debated. So after the presentation, some members of the audience suggested the benefits of the 39-week rule undoubtedly outweigh any risk. In other words, we're talking about the lives of eight mothers who, didn't, who would have died in C-sections. According to one physician, we have achieved a lot by implementing the 839-week rule, and I caution against the suggestion that we need to go back to where we were before. Our belief that the rule improves outcomes is based on ecological cohort studies that is not proven in clinical practice. Dr. Nichols encountered. In fact, a literature search for articles proving clinical benefit turned up nothing, he reported. One study showed, for example, that admissions to neonatal intensive care units actually increased over time. Readiness for delivery is a judgment call by the clinician, and not all providers take the time to consider all the variables. A number of factors may coexist. For example, the patient may have a little diabetes that's supposedly controlled. But how well is it controlled? Do you know? Such things besides gestational age have to be taken into consideration, she explained. Interpretation of these factors is extremely important. Now, doing a C-section on a diabetic is definitely risky. The person's more prone to infection, all kinds of problems. 
Um, and again, what these people are saying is the only way to get a baby out uh, pronto is a C-section. Apparently they haven't heard about cayenne pepper. She also emphasized the need to understand more about the pathophysiology of the stillbirth. Unless we know the cause, we can't say it's related to the 39-week rule. Over time, we have fewer unrecognized causes, but there still are some. Now, again, they said the stillbirth does not seem to be gestation-related. In other words, they don't mostly occur at 39 weeks. So I agree that the incorporation of the 39-week rule took out the thought process at times and clinical decision-making providers. But I'm not sure it needs to be dropped. I don't think some portions of the rule need to be revised, she said. Now, obviously, if they drop the 39-week rule, there'll be a heck of a lot more um, C-sections. Like I said, specifically, 83,000 C-sections more need to be done in order to save one baby. This is not cool. And just to uh, bring this home, Balancing risks and benefits. This is a vaginal delivery compared to cesarean delivery. So overall frequency of severe morbidity and mortality, and that's open to definition, is um, 9.2% in cesarean and 8.6% vaginal delivery. Does that sound like much? But mortality risk is a lot higher. Uh, 0.9% versus 2.7%. Those are pretty high. This is the maternal and, oh, they add the baby and the mother together. So which is a, it's a, uh, oh, this is maternal. Okay. Maternal mortality, death rate, 3.6 per 100,000 if you do vaginal and 13 per 100,000 if you do C-section. And risk of amniotic fluid embolism is, between three and seven for vaginal delivery and about 16 for uh, cesarean delivery. So amniotic fluid embolism is, is a huge deal because that means that amniotic fluid is sucked into the mother's uh, venous system. It goes through her lungs and um, chokes off her breathing, basically. So the neonatal, which is the... Um, Complications of the baby, breathing problems, 4% in a cesarean delivery. And that is, uh, that's a pretty big deal because those 4% generally end up going to the intensive care unit. And so that's a major revenue generator for the hospital. And you can see here that with uh, vaginal delivery, less than 1% of babies have respiratory issues. And again, that's because with the cesarean section, the baby is born with a lung full of water. So... What is a woman to do? (laughs) Stay home. Just stay home. As Nancy Reagan would say, just say no to drugs. (laughs) Just say no. Because the problem here is you can't win. If the doctors use the 39-week rule, what does that mean? 39-week rule means we don't do C-sections before 39 weeks unless there's a good reason, but the instance of stillbirth increases. That's one thing. Well, the next thing is, okay, we're not going to obey the 39-week rule. We're going to do C-sections earlier than 39 weeks just because, and we're going to kill an additional or, you know, incremental 
um, nine women. So, uh, again, you're choosing between, between killing and killing, basically. That's the choice we have here. And if you say, well, wait a minute, if we need to get this baby out and the baby is term, let's say more than 35 weeks, then why don't we do something that's not going to kill the baby? In other words, the baby's going to be born vaginally, squeeze all that liquid out of the lungs, no respiratory distress, and the woman is not going to endure this big, huge surgical procedure and risk death. And so, of course, in my medical practice, I managed to figure out to give the lady a teaspoon of cayenne pepper and a cup of water down the hatch, or basically tell her to do it at home. Uh, Another lady called me and said, oh, you know, I I went in for labor, and they said the baby's doing okay, but I'm pretty far along in the pregnancy, so they want to do a delivery, a surgical delivery tomorrow morning. I said, well, take a teaspoon of cayenne pepper, a cup of water, drink it, go to bed. You should be in labor, you know. You should wake up in labor. And sure enough, took the cayenne pepper and water, and the baby was born uh, within 16 hours, vaginally. So uh, th- this is absolutely um, shocking to me, what they put pregnant ladies through. And another um, pregnancy that I observed, my niece. My niece was pregnant, and she was uh, pregnant with triplets, and she developed vomiting of pregnancy. Well, thank God her mother had platinum insurance, which covered her. And just everything the doctors did, by golly, they got paid for. And so they put in a central line, uh, which ultimately got infected as central lines do. And they left the central line in like for a month. And so she developed low-grade fevers and feeling hot, even delirious. And the doctor said, well, there's nothing wrong here. It's really okay, blah, blah, blah. And so they finally took the line out when I instructed my brother, which was her father, to threaten to call the district attorney to report a murder in progress unless they remove the line. And when he said that, all of a sudden, they were able to remove that line in less than 15 minutes. So they moved, removed the line, which, of course, saved her, but all three babies died um, inside of her at about 20, uh, 23 weeks gestation. So had she not had prenatal care, had she not had a central line put in, uh, then she probably would have three live triplets today. Um, There is absolutely no evidence that prenatal care, as it's practiced in the United States, increases the number of live healthy births. In other words, if you take 100 pregnant ladies, the number of live births one year later is actually less with prenatal care and had you not gotten prenatal care. Why? Because the diagnostic tests done during pregnancy overdiagnose genetic abnormalities, and many ladies actually abort their babies unnecessarily during the course of their pregnancy because they get these genetic tests showing their baby is defective when the baby is not. And then there are many interventions during the uh, prenatal period where the actual intervention causes miscarriage or ending of the pregnancy. And so when we have a low um, infant mortality figure of, say, 6 per 1,000, which is down from 11, by the way, um, this is like, wow, this is a great progress, great progress. What I don't realize is the kill rate from conception to birth has skyrocketed. 
And so when you have a lady who's pregnant, all she wants to know is what are my chances of having a live birth? And the woman erroneously perceives that this low infant mortality means that they have a greater chance of having a live birth when actually it's just the opposite because that infant mortality is achieved by diagnosing babies that are genetically defective, being sure that they get aborted. And then, of course, for every one baby you abort that's genetically defective, you abort 10 that are healthy just because of the false positive rate of these tests. And so if you're a woman and you're pregnant and all you want to do is maximize your chances of having a healthy live birth, then the only sensible thing to do is skip prenatal care. That's if you want to maximize your chances of having a healthy live baby. What if you just want to have, maximize your chances of you living through the experience? Well, if you want to maximize that chance, then again, the thing you do is avoid prenatal care because then you don't get scheduled for these C-sections. You don't get scheduled for these interventions. And um, women who birth at home have a much more relaxed experience and um, birth tends to progress a lot uh, quicker and a lot easier. Now, we only have two minutes left. No, six minutes left. So it's time to answer a few questions. Let me see. Oh, I'd like to remind people that we have the version 2.0 of the Candida Cleaner. And they can go to VitalityCapsules.com and sign up for the Candida Cleaner at VitalityCapsules.com. Okay, let's take a look. We got tons of questions. <laughs> okay. My mother had seven children at home. God bless her. Absolutely. And that's the way to do it. Um, my grandmother had 10 children at home. And by the way, she had two stillbirths. But still, she had a higher success rate than most American women have, uh, you know, going to the doctor. So going to the doctor, um, a woman who conceived in the United States now has at best a 75% chance of a live birth. So going to the doctor immediately, as soon as she knows she conceived, gives her basically a 25%, at least a 25% loss rate, and it's actually slightly higher than that. Women who skip the prenatal care and have their own babies, however they want to have them, let's say at home, um, have a loss rate of somewhere around 17%. So it's much, much lower. Now, so then, since we aren't, since you're not having prenatal care, you're not diagnosing these genetic abnormalities, right? And so these babies who would have been stillbirth or would have been uh, died soon after birth are diagnosed in utero around 23 to 20, uh, 23 weeks, 17 to 23 weeks amniocentesis, and um, they are aborted. So you really haven't improved, um, you haven't improved your um, actual yield or outcome. Question. Okay. So, so uh, how much cayenne pepper and how much warm water? So one teaspoon cayenne pepper and one cup of water. And just put it in a glass, shake it up, and drink it down. What's the reason for the large meal? The reason for the large meal is she's going to go into labor, and she needs energy for, you know, the big work ahead. Unfortunately, for going to bed to make certain the bowel movement occurs, no. The baby is the bowel movement, and the baby will create the bowel movement. The baby's the the colon is actually plastered to the back of your uh, the back of your abdominal cavity wall, and as the baby rotates and comes down, the baby actually presses against the colon and presses out stool 
um, right ahead of the head. In fact, the stool coming out first is, a, is your early sign the head's on its way. Okay. Dr. Dance, do you keep an archive of your past monthly office hours for those who pay for future office hours to listen to as well? Yes. So they're all in one area, and when you pay for office hours, you get access to that one area. My grandson has Herb's palsy because of the doctor's neglect. Dr. Dance, can you do a show to make everyone aware of Herb's palsy? Okay. So Herb's palsy is basically um, a palsy that happens because of the doctor's delivery style, basically yanking on the arm uh, to get the baby out. And so that's unfortunate, but uh, again, if you sit at home and have your baby, you don't have that problem. Okay. Um. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, I just received a shipment of Russian Shilajit. It looks like small bottles of very sticky black tar. That's right. Not powder like I expected. Okay, so your expectations were erroneous. It is not powder. It is very sticky black tar, which is the highest quality stuff. The black powder is actually very poor quality and has contaminants like lead and arsenic. So you don't want the powder. With a small plastic stick, and the directions are in, oh, in Russian. Holy smokes. How do you use this stuff? Uh, you just take a little bit of the tar on the stick, put it in about two or three ounces of water, let it set overnight. In the morning, it will be dissolved. You just stir the stick and drink it. There you go. Dr. Downs, very interesting topic. I wish I had known this before I had children and grandchildren. Yes, I wish I had known all this before I had children and children. Uh, not yet grandchildren, so I'll deliver the grandkids myself. Uh, thank you. <laughs> sale on Vitality Council is coming. Yes, we hope to have a Black Friday sale. And that is it. And as always, by golly, think happens. And we'll see you next week.